Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred texts with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi, friends. Welcome, welcome back. In today's episode, we are going to look at the first half of the book of Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah chapters 1 through 20, for the dates October 10th through the 16th. And before we start, we want to say a big, big thank you and send all of our appreciation to our volunteer transcriptionist team, which includes Heather, Sarah, and Mary. These awesome folks spend lots of time working on our transcriptions for the episodes to make sure that they can be available online. So thank you so much. We're so thankful for all of our listeners' patience as we get those transcripts uploaded to the website. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you a million times. So as we move toward the text, this week's recommended study in the Come Follow Me manual focuses on chapters 1 through 3, 7, 16 through 18, and chapter 20. But instead of just picking the chapters that we're going to read, we've actually read all of the chapters 1 through 20 to tease out the themes and the verses that draw most on our hearts and our attention. The manual has us focusing on subjects such as the role of prophets, the gathering of Israel, and the concept of foreordination. Of course, these are all relevant themes that show up in the text, but what really stood out to us today was talking about the motif of marriage between God and Israel, talking about colonialism and imperialism and the concept of public theologians, and just a brief little mention about the Queen of Heaven. And this is where we'll be spending our time and focusing during the episode. We're going to move kind of broadly, looking at the themes that show up really frequently or repeatedly over the text, and then dive in to look at uh, things that show up in specific chapters and verses. So we're so excited for you to join us today. Yes. So let's get started. So what is the book of Jeremiah? This is These are prophetic writings from the prophet Jeremiah who lived during the reign of King Josiah until after the Israelites were conquered by the Babylonians in like 586 BC. Jeremiah was a really, really heavy critic of idolatry among the Israelites and desired to reunite the tribe of Judah with Israel under a common cause of righteousness by, you know, adhering to God's commandments. Throughout the assigned chapters, we continue to see this kind of motif of the marriage between God and Israel. For example, if we take a look in chapter 3, verses 14, 1, and 20 say things like, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you unto Zion. Verse 1 says, They say, If a man put away, or like divorce his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not the land be greatly polluted? 
Thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. And in verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. So we can see here that there is this recurring theme or like literary device being used between God and Israel. And guess who gets painted as an adulterous wife? It is Israel. (laughs) Unfortunately. I know, I know. But also like not entirely unexpected because we also Mm -hmm. see this uh, motif like pop up in other prophetic writings. I believe we also saw it in Isaiah, I think in the chapters that we didn't end up covering. Mm -hmm. Um, But this this is a common theme in the Hebrew Bible and we'll actually continue to see it repeated in upcoming books. Um, So we wanted to spend a little time here and look at some of the structures of power and domination that are contributing to this, this use of metaphor and see if we can't like look at it a little bit more closely and potentially reimagine a more healthy alternative. The first thing that we wanted to look at uh, that's kind of operating in this metaphor is looking at the system of sexism. Remember, like way, way back in the very beginning of this year, we learned back in Numbers, the book of Numbers, that there is a double standard for sexual interactions for men and for women in the Israelite community. For example, men were allowed to have sex with someone other than their spouse, as long as their other partner was not robbed of their virginity and wasn't attached to another man. But for women, the law was much stricter and allows sex only with one's husband exclusively. Also during this time, marriage functioned largely as a transference of property from one man to another. Women, quote, belonged to a man, first as a daughter, then as a wife, concubine or slave, and then to her of-age son in the case of widowhood. We see an illustration of this in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 10, which is an example of an objectification of wives. It reads, quote, Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them, end quote. We also see this objectification occur in other instances in the text where wives are listed alongside like flocks of sheep or like donkeys or lands or whatever it is. And so it it's not unfamiliar to readers of the text for women to be objectified as men's property or belonging to men. And so if we move more specifically to examining the metaphor of marriage between God and Israel, the metaphor really functions as another demonstration of Israel's belonging to this God, just as wives belong to their husbands in this case. Now, from our modern day standards, we recognize this dynamic as an unequal relationship that doesn't that doesn't fully embrace autonomy and freedom. We also recognize this metaphor is limited because of its gendered power imbalance that is inherent in ancient times, including Israel. However, we also recognize our own modern perspective is biased and it is limited and not fully contextual for biblical times. Like we didn't live in 586 BC, so I am leaving room for possibility that I might be missing some important information that would have made this metaphor more nourishing for ancient Israel. But we recognize that both the metaphor and our interpretations of it are both limited. So we're going to try and see if we can't like reconcile or compromise between the two of them and come up with a, I don't know, like healthy alternative solution. (laughs) One of the first ways that we could do this is that we could start by looking at the power structures and also the likelihood of this situation in our own lived experience. We have examples in the text of men sleeping with other women. 
Judah with Tamar in Genesis, David with Bathsheba, not to mention the countless rapes in the wars and battles that are littered throughout the Hebrew Bible. But also throughout the Hebrew Bible, there is actually never a mention of an adulterous woman, with the exception of Gomer in the book of Hosea. And even this example's primary function is to work again as a metaphor for God for God forgiving Israel and welcoming them home to Zion, just like we've seen in the other uses of this metaphor in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I think that it seems really unlikely, based on the power structures in place designed to keep women beneath men, including the practice of sota that was outlined in Numbers 5, like the ritual with poisoned water that we talked about, that many in ancient Israel would have encountered an adulterous woman. Like, we're not saying it was impossible. We're saying it was likely rare. In this way, the metaphor was not based on a common occurrence, but on an almost unimaginable one. We think that this metaphor also functions within a power structure based on whose imagination it plays upon in the text. Instead, we think that the text speaks directly to men, almost as if saying, can you imagine how awful it would be to be cheated on? It would be unforgivable. It would be the most wretched experience of your life. And yet, God says, you've done this very thing to me by worshiping other gods. And I still want you to come back home because I love you. I'd forgive you and love you and welcome you back if you just repent and come home. And this forgiveness and welcome of a woman after adultery is supposed to be seen as something so impossible that the simple act of being willing to do so illustrates God's goodness because God can do something that mortal men could not and cannot bring themselves to do. Yeah, that's a really, just such a tricky way uh, to really understand and like look at this metaphor and like it is particularly harmful too. Like it's basically like one of the things that I thought as I was reading this chapter was like, whose God is this? Like Mm -hmm. this is not, this is not a woman's God. Like I don't, as, as a woman, I don't feel especially like loved or cared for or paid attention to when the best like metaphor or illustration of how forgiving God is, is saying like, look at this whore. <laughs> like, yeah. I will I'll still, I'm so good. Her. I'll still love her. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it just feels like really yucky and icky and um, does not align with um, my lived experience and my like personal spiritual experiences with the divine. So mm-hmm. this is a, a really sticky place, I think, especially for women who are reading the text. And so, like we said earlier, we want to maybe find a way through or find a reconciliation or a compromise um, for this metaphor that might result in something a little bit more balanced or a little bit more healthy. So for me, as I was kind of working through this, this section of the text and looking at like, what could we possibly do to reinterpretate to reinterpret this section of text, one of the examples from my own lived experience that I felt has been like a really powerful um, unlearning and re-understanding of like healthy relationship models actually comes from the kink community. And it's something called power exchange. If you're not familiar with that, or if you're not familiar with um, kink at all, that's okay. Like this isn't even going to be like a kink in 101 uh, educational podcast episode. But um, for the purposes of this conversation, um, power exchange, we'll define that in just a little bit, is um, founded on the principle of informed consent, not just implied consent, which is like honestly a slippery slope to the lack of consent, but it 
But power exchange and um, BDSM relationships are founded on explicit, clearly defined, and communicated consent. Power exchange is the concept of deliberately giving up and or taking on power in one particular relationship. Power can be communicated in so many different ways in relationships, with freedom, with submission, with dominance, etc. But power dynamics are always present in any relationship, whether vanilla or kink. Balance of power in primary relationships is actually something that is a primary focus of feminism, from working on the mental and emotional load, financial independence, housework and childcare, and bodily autonomy. These are all parts and aspects of experience and relationships that depend on a balance of power. So the concept of power in relationships is not inherently kinky, but negotiating and playing with these power dynamics can be. In BDSM and kink spaces, power exchanges and dynamics are communicated, deliberated, and decided upon from a place of equity. Partners explicitly outline their needs and desires from the relationship and communicate with each other what those needs are and what they're willing and able and not willing and not able to do and provide in that relationship before ever starting the relationship. Some partners desire the freedom from responsibility or the sense of care and protection that giving up control in the relationship can give them. And sometimes other partners enjoy the sense of purpose, responsibility, and caretaking roles that bringing on more control in the relationship can give to them. Both partners either consent to the dynamics, responsibilities, and limits before even participating, or they both gracefully exit the relationship before it's even started, if they realize they're unable to uphold them. There's also an understanding that either partner is allowed to exit the relationship at any time without consequence. This relationship and power exchange is underpinned by ongoing conversations centering informed consent. And so I really enjoy this perspective on relationships because they begin and end with informed consent. Traditional cis-heteronormative marriages are underpinned by implied consent, believing that, once imp- believing that once partners say, I do, at the altar, that they are then entitled to one another in a hundred different ways without ever needing to communicate to each other about what that actually means or look like. Spouses can live entire lifetimes dancing around the myriad implications that sexism and gender roles provide and feel continually unfulfilled in their marriage because there's no intentional space created for those kinds of conversations. I really feel that the kink community provides a strong example of communication and equity in relationships, even when some of those relationships don't appear to be equitable to the untrained eye but where in traditional vanilla relationships, care, love, and loyalty are implied and expected, but never clearly defined or explicitly agreed to, those who participate in consensual power exchange know and trust the expectations, limits, and commitments of their partners. It's not to say that all kink relationships are healthy, but that the foundational values of informed consent and informed commitment for all parties is inherently equitable. Each partner understands that they're responsible for their own needs, their own safety, and their own pleasure, unless they've explicitly agreed to another arrangement. And I really enjoy reimagining the marriage of God and Israel in this way. I like to think of this situation where maybe they sit down and say to each other and negotiate with each other, like, hey, what's going on for me? Like, isn't totally working right now. So like, maybe we can sit down and have an explicit conversation about what my needs are, what your needs are, what our desires are, and figure out a way forward. 
What if Israel were to say to God, I don't feel like I have a full understanding of what you need to feel comfortable with me. Can you tell me more about how I can help you feel secure in our relationship? And maybe God would say, yeah, I can see that I need to work on my patience and self-regulation. Maybe could you meet me halfway and provide some regular reassurance of your love? And also, how could I better support a sense of fulfillment and trust between us? Israel might say, well, you could start by not threatening me every time you get mad. And God could agree that the past approach has been abusive and commit to seeking outside support for unlearning and relearning healthy relationship communication skills. And we imagine, I imagine, that they just keep talking and returning to the conversation until both of them feel satisfied with their arrangement, rather than holding each other to unspoken expectations that are steeped in thousands of years of domination and resenting and harming each other instead. Vanilla relationships can learn so much from the kink community about expressing desire and commitment within the safety and security of informed consent. Vanilla relationships don't necessarily even need to incorporate kink to foster healthy relationships, but instead can learn from it, but instead can learn from its example to hold the self and the partner in balance. It's not a perfect reimagining, right? This like imagining of like God and Israel and like an informed consensual power exchange dynamic conversation, but I really think it's an exciting place to start because it values and centers the consent needs, desires, and abilities of both partners equally. So that is one way that we can maybe compromise and come up with a new modern solution to an old, old problem. <laughs> love that. Love that. And I hope that that means you get to talk about kink in your Sunday school lesson. <laughs> <laughs> if only. I would show up to church for that. <laughs> Continuing on with like modern day interpretations of the book of Jeremiah, I wanted to look at Jeremiah chapter 2 and think about colonialism and imperialism with which are not only like modern contemporary things and actually these are themes that are both implicit and explicit in the book of Jeremiah and for those just before we start I think that we should do kind of like an educational refresh on these concepts there's a really great book called Understanding Postcolonialism by Jane Hiddleston and the next few things I'm going to read are direct quotes from the book that are kind of tailored to the needs of the podcast. So colonialism, I think that sometimes we talk a lot about colonialism, but we might have a difficult time like articulating exactly what it is. But colonialism is the conquest. And after the conquest, you have this control of another country. And it involves both the subjugation of that country's native peoples and the administration of its government, economy, and produce. The act of colonization is a concrete process of invasion and a practical like seizing of control, which is at the same time backed up by a colonial ideology that stresses that stresses cultural supremacy, that one person's or one group of people's culture is um, better than another culture. It's also colonialism is also a cultural ideology that justifies the colonizer's presence on the basis of this superior knowledge and civilization. So groups of people showing up and saying that, like, we are more civilized than you, therefore we are better and we have different rights than you. But colonialism and imperialism, they're similar, but they're also a bit different. So if we think of colonialism as the concrete act of conquest, imperialism is the kind of broader form of authority and dominance. Colonialism is one active manifestation of imperialist ideology. 
So imperialist ideology is kind of the broad umbrella and colonialism is one of the active pieces under that umbrella. And imperialism can also be understood as this like larger structure of economic or political hegemony, which is like um, a culture designed around the dominant ideas and power of, of the people in power that does not have to include the direct rule and conquest of another country. So then imperialism could like continue after the end of a colonial rule where the colonists have like left the country, but imperialism could still continue. And indeed, Many critics have actually described, guess who, the United States' current dominance of the global markets as a new form of imperialist rule. Imperialism is also now associated with capitalism and with the attempt by Western states to impose their capitalist system on the rest of the world. And one way that we might see that is through colonialism. Okay, so now with all that in mind, I recognize that that is very kind of like dictionary definition heavy but <laughs> if you've stayed if you stuck along i actually want to look at chapter 2 verse 7 which this verse has stuck with me in preparation for this episode the verse says and i brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof but when ye entered ye defiled my land and made and made mine heritage an abomination and I think this verse, alongside the rest of the chapter and the others in the first half of the book of Jeremiah, can be read to address the wickedness of people, not only for turning their backs on God, but for the violence and the mistreatment of both the land and indigenous peoples. And I think that this could be understood as either the Babylonian Empire and imperialist, imperialist violence, and or the people of Israel furthering colonialism and imperialism over other native groups or traditions. And for this reason, we might begin to understand how this verse is sitting, I think, at the intersection of colonized and colonizer. If we try to interpret this verse for a contemporary audience, we might begin to see how, although many white folks are descendants of colonized Western Europeans, they were also, slash we are also, uh, the colonizers. So like a personal example, much of my ancestry is Irish, which means that we are at once colonizers and colonized. For example, the Irish Times writes, quote, The Irish helped run the Indian Empire, although they were, like the Indians, a subject people, end quote. Additionally, Ireland was both colonized by the British and many Irish folks ended up immigrating to the United States. And although they were met with harsh treatment and discrimination, Irish folks were also participating in the growing structure of white supremacy to gain what power and recognition they could. Absolutely. And I think this verse also makes us think about the history of the church and the simultaneous years of persecution and years of colonization as they moved across the states. I really appreciate the stern voice of God in this verse, especially as it relates to the history of the church. Multiple things can be true at once. God could have guided the Mormon pioneers to what they deemed the promised land to escape persecution and I like knowing God would also condemn and does continue to condemn our Mormon ancestors and present community for their acts of colonization, murder, and mistreatment of indigenous folks and racism and violence by saying, quote, and I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination, end quote. And I think for us, this verse is kind of like a time warp because it shows this constant struggle of power and makes 
clear God's stance on colonialism and imperialism, and God is condemning those things. And so when we and our ancestors participate as colonizers, we're not, not only are we spreading the ideology of imperialism and supremacy that is backed with violence, but we are also destroying land and making this kind of long heritage of abomination and genocide and violence. And so I think it's quite important for us to, as we move throughout the prophetic books here, to recognize the context of what was happening as the Babylonian empire was like taking control of the different groups of people and also recognize the ways that those themes of colonialism and imperialism also operate outside of a sacred text and they operate in consequential ways and in concrete ways in our everyday lives. Yeah, I also think it's worth mentioning too that we see like the Hebrew Bible itself and the New Testament, all all of the sacred texts that we're seeing also illustrate really well that intersection of colonized and colonizer, right? Like we see (laughs) throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, like almost the swaying back and forth between like enslavement and liberation either of self or of others to the perceived detriment or benefit of Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were enslaved in Egypt and then they were liberated. But then Mm -hmm. as soon as they got to Canaan, they committed huge acts of rape and Mm -hmm. genocide. And then like this cycle of like war and domination and murder and slaughter and like these horrible, like inhumane acts just continue throughout Mm -hmm. the entire text. And um, I really do think that there, there's something something to be said there about like the Bible itself is a commentary on this continued cycle of colonization and imperialism and that no one, including the readers and the people inside of the text (laughs) are immune from its effects. And so it's worth, I think it's worth looking at and examining like what role do I play in the system of colonization and imperialism. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a complex question that is going to have many different answers based on your social location. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about the, especially in the book of Jeremiah, as we think about really some of the awful images and metaphors that come to pass in the book, I think it's also important for us to realize that these things are coming out of these people's lived experience. And there's a really fantastic article that we found titled Towards a Feminist Public Theology on Wounds, Scars, and Healing in the Book of Jeremiah and Beyond by the South African feminist theologian L. Juliana Klassens. And Klassens sets up this article by recognizing the important role that feminist theologians play, especially in the public eye. And I think that, you know, not to like brag or boast, but I do think that that is one thing that Channing and I are trying to do to move theology out of, you know, this kind of like pristine academic or um, religious institutional ivory tower and try and like share it open access to the public. And so Klassen's outlines three different like key characteristics of feminist public theology. And then she recognizes the ways that actually Jeremiah is working as a public theologian, trying to both recognize the pain of the time in which he's living and also provide hope to a people who feel like they're on the brink of destruction. Yeah. So maybe we can spend some time looking at some of the characteristics that Klassen's outlines that helps us identify um, public theologians or even feminist public theologians. So one of the characteristics that Klassen shares is one, this person is a light shining in the darkness. 
Classens describes these people as public theologians who live in the world as it is, but are called to imagine the world to be otherwise, thus helping people to see beyond their current circumstances marred by the effects of violence and injustice. Here to shine a light on injustice in the Bible, in society, and declare truths that can lighten and enlighten the past of the most marginalized. The second characteristic that Classens identifies is uncovering wounds. Public theologians recognize the deep wounds and scars caused by systemic racism, sexism, xenophobia, and homophobia. We must face the world with all its crookedness and help name the wounds beneath the surface. And finally, the third characteristic that Classens identifies is binding up wounds, to go beyond merely surfacing the wounds, but also to tend to them by means of touching, cleaning, and applying balm with the distinct purpose of healing. The feminist public theologian's vocation of tending to hidden, open, and infected wounds requires that she uses the best theological resources at her disposal. She is not only called to help people make sense of the pain that is caused by the insidious trauma of racism, sexism, and poverty, but she also sets out to keep alive the hope that the world must and should look differently from the sight of ruins. Mm -hmm. And Klassen continues to say that this wound work shows up in the book of Jeremiah as Jeremiah takes on a public theological role. Following the ruins from the devastating Babylonian invasion, Jeremiah helped his people face the reality of their wounded past and present. At the same time, he strived to engage in the act of meaning-making that was essential for the process of healing. Theologian Kathleen M. Connor writes, quote, Jeremiah does the life-saving work of a preacher-poet-theologian. He looks at his people's situation. He lives among them and sees their world. He names it and reframes it by imaginatively reinventing traditions they share. This interpretive work rebuilds them into a people, end quote. Now, the first part of the book of Jeremiah, specifically if we look at chapters four through six, offer really vivid descriptions of violence that recount the military invasion of the Babylonian empire in an attempt to uncover the wounds of imperialism, like we talked about. We see language around the enemy, like things of lions, wolves, leopards, who eat up and devour the people's food, animals, property, and their loved ones. We also see wounds from structural violence of class, gender, and ethnicity. And in chapter 5 and 6, these chapters expose the slow violence of poverty and the injustice that harms the people. We also see that Jeremiah attempts to bind the wounds by way of lament. Classens writes, quote, Lament is a socio-political protest that names woundedness and loss and refuses to be complicit in the erasure of pain and brokenness from communal memory, end quote. In chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, we see a wounded prophet standing in solidarity with his people, who writes, quote, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why, then, is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? End quote. And in chapter 6, verse 26, we hear Jeremiah saying again, quote, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth, and wallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning, as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the destroyer shall suddenly come upon us, end quote. And we see such an act of challenging violence and standing in solidarity is important for moving beyond uncovering the wounds and to start the often long and difficult process of healing. We really like this article and the interpretations offered by 
Classen's about Jeremiah because it contextualizes the story and I think it really helps us show us what it might look like to name and offer hope and provide balms for wounds of the world that a world that is wounded by racism, imperialism, homophobia, etc. And it also reminds us that although these chapters can be quite challenging to read because they are at times quite violent and brutal, there is important work in telling the truth of your people's story, even if that includes violence. And Jeremiah seems to be a great reminder and a call towards memory, solidarity, lament, and hope. Something that's like so striking to me as we've kind of moved through the Old Testament is just like how pointed the crit- and how pointed and how frequent the critiques of systems of domination continue to show up. It's like again and again and again and again. Elise and I open the text to read it and we're like, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this because like this is just talking about like such cool and radical things. And I think um, I'm not necessarily like surprised by it as in I wasn't expecting it, but I am surprised in its frequency and it's like strength and point in this in the critique that just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's a, it's a really good reminder. Um, just like Elise really demonstrated with the Classen's article that it is a still ongoing work of healing the wounds because the wounds are still very, very present. The last thing that we wanted to look at in this week's chapter is the figure of the queen of heaven. And we see this figure show up in chapter seven, verses 17 through 18, which read quote, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me unto anger. End quote. So we always ask, who is this person? Who is the queen of heaven? And there are a couple of different theories. One of the theories is that the Queen of Heaven is one of the other goddesses that was worshipped in the area. A couple of possibilities would be Isis, who was an Egyptian mother goddess, Inanna, who was a Sumerian goddess of love and war, or Asherah, who was a Canaanite mother goddess. Some believe in the Catholic tradition that the Queen of Heaven is Mary, mother of Jesus, and some in the LDS tradition believe that this is referring to Heavenly Mother, and this is particularly strong um, with the Asherah goddess connection reference. Um, From the Britannica Encyclopedia, it says, quote, inscriptions from two locations in southern Palestine seem to indicate that the Queen of Heaven was also worshipped as the consort of Yahweh, end quote. And we'll provide a link for that in our show notes. So just wanted to do a quick mention here and let everybody know that goddess worship was not unusual during ancient times. So it shouldn't (laughs) surprise us to find examples of it here in the text. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about this figure um, of the Queen of Heaven in next week's episode when we see the same content show up with a little bit more strength and a little bit more of a heavy critique. But we wanted to give a little heads up here for our listeners who are interested and maybe want to do a little bit more diving in before next week's episode. Um, So that is all that we have for today. Oh my goodness. Yes. Oh my goodness. It's nice to start a new fresh book, the book of Jeremiah. Thanks so much for being here. And we look forward to kind of continuing the conversation on Instagram or via email to see what people are thinking about and studying about this week. All right. We love you all so, so much. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. 
We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.